This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. Paul Theroux is one of the most prolific travel writers of our time. He began inspiring Wanderlust 48 years ago with the release of The Great Railway Bazaar, a chronicle of his epic four-month train ride from the United Kingdom through Europe, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. The international bestseller is now considered a classic of travel literature. Paul continues to make epic journeys around the world. His body of work spans fiction and nonfiction and has been adapted into TV shows and films. You may have heard of The Mosquito Coast, which was made into a 1986 movie starring Harrison Ford, and more recently into a TV series on Apple+. Paul's ability to bring the world to his readers and encourage his readers to explore the world has not gone unnoticed. In 2015, he was awarded a Royal Medal from the Royal Geographical Society for the encouragement of geographical discovery through travel writing. It is perhaps the highest award attainable by a traveler. As an avid reader, former travel editor, and the CEO of a travel media company, I've always appreciated the way reading, writing, and travel enrich one another. So I'm thrilled to have Paul with me today to discuss the beautiful relationship between the page and travel, but also our shared love of collecting objects on our travel. We're also collecting questions for the next Ask Melissa, so please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-7297 or send me a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack on how you can now renew your passport online. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. Paul, how did you marry your passion for travel and what it means for you and writing. How did those things come together to make your life's career? That's a good question. Actually, it was travel turned me into a writer. I was writing before then. I mean, I was a university student and writing. But really, when you you grow up, you go to college and read books, you've got nothing to write about. I mean, you really have no experience of the world. So I read Dostoevsky. I read Spanish literature. I could speak Italian, so I could uh, read in Italian. I read Shakespeare. I read all the books that you're supposed to read. But I had really no experience of the world. So after college, I joined the Peace Corps and I went to Africa. Although I was writing before then, I wrote writing in college, I wrote plays, I wrote short stories and so forth. There was nothing in it. When I went to Africa, this was in December 1963. It was 60 years ago. That was the beginning of my seeing the world and and my writing career, of having a subject, having something outside myself, something that I cared about, a new landscape, something very vivid. And it was high contrast. I mean, it was still a British territory. It was called Niasaland in Central Africa. And I was a teacher. 
So I had I had a school, I had friends, I was living in a village, I was living in a very remote place. I spoke the language, the Peace Corps had taught me the language, it was called Chichewa, very similar to Swahili in some ways, uh, more subtle uh, as a Bantu language. And it gave me something to write about, not only that, because the, the country itself had only been written about in a very small way by Lawrence Vanderpost, a book called A Venture to the Interior. That was the only travel that was written about the country. So it was like a virgin territory. It, was, it hadn't been written about in any serious way apart from Vanderpost. I was in a place that had never been written about. I was in a place called Sochi Hill in the southern region. And I traveled then too. I went to Mozambique. I went to southern Rhodesia, it was called then. I went to Zambia, the Congo, Nigeria, Ghana. I traveled around. So at the end of two years, I decided to stay in Africa. After the Peace Corps, I went to Uganda, and there was more to write about. So my first book was published while I was still in Uganda. And then I was writing six years altogether. I felt Africa was such a rich place. And I wasn't interested in game. I wasn't interested in safaris or anything like that. I was interested in the texture of people's lives, villages, language, and the changes. Also, older people had stories that I'd never heard before. No one had heard them. In 1963, a man in his 60s had seen the First World War in Africa. You know, the, the book The African Queen was set during World War One in uh, Lake Victoria. So there were people who remembered seeing their first white person and the beginning had maybe had been born in the 19th century. So all of that travel made me into a serious writer. I've been writing before then about my family, friends, colleagues, but that's nothing. That really didn't animate me. So that was my beginning. You were talking about marrying travel to writing. Yeah. And I would imagine that you approach all travel because we are who we are in our experiences as a writer and as an observer. I mean, you just talked about what you love about meeting new people and hearing their stories and the high contrast of life. And that's so often what you explore in your books. Yes, you bring yourself to what you're writing, but you're also really intrigued by what about these new places that we go to as a traveler are different and what do they have to teach us about ourselves? Obviously, that happened to you a lot in Africa. But there's lots of other places where you've gone and you've also been an outsider telling, in some ways, the stories of what you encounter. I think of the great Railway Bazaar, which is sold over a million and a half copies. Can you tell us about the journey in that book? Yes, well, I was very young. I mean, I meant to say earlier, I went to Africa when I was 22 years old. So, I mean, that was a long time ago. And I took the Great Railway Bazaar trip. That was my first travel book. I had read travel books before then. I didn't particularly like travel books, to tell you the truth. I mentioned Venture to the Interior. It was a book set in Niasaland, and I was in Niasaland, and I read the book, and I thought, this, is a, this really isn't a good book. It made Lauren Vanderpost famous, but it's sort of a tepid, heart of darkness story, not very well written, and I didn't recognize the country. So I didn't read travel books. The books that I read that influenced my travel were novels. Yeah. A book like Carlo Levi, Christ Stopped at Eboli, about southern Italy. He was exiled in, in a small town in Italy. I read that very early on, and I, I wanted to go to Italy. That wasn't really a travel book. It's sort of a memoir of living in a town. But when you read, uh, you know, the books that I read that had landscape in them were always novels. The tra a travel book was, to me, 
a book about sightseeing. Yeah. So I came of age in the 1950s, and the books were, say, um, Richard Halliburton, The Royal Road to Romance. They're about discovering the Taj Mahal. When I was growing up, the Taj Mahal by moonlight was a destination. You know, that's what you want to see. And so destinations have changed. I decided to write The Great Way of Bazaar because I like taking trains. And I realized that I could take a train from London to Afghanistan. And then I would take a bus through Afghanistan to go through Pakistan, India, Burma, and so forth. So it was the ease of it. I had been writing novels before then. I had published five novels, but I, I needed a subject. So I thought the thing that beckoned me was the idea of getting on a train in Victoria Station in London, going to Paris, then going to Istanbul and going onward. I mean, that's a very appealing idea. That's different from the books that I've been written, which is, you know, the kind of National Geographic story. My wife and I went to Africa and we met this amusing little man. That, that sort of stuff didn't interest me at all. But the idea of taking a train, meeting people on a train and not sightseeing. I mean, this that's a kind of anti-sightseeing book. I went to India and didn't go to the Taj Mahal. What I did was, so I, I bypassed it uh, deliberately. Went to Afghanistan and I didn't write about it because there were no trains there. I mean, there I was. 1973, everyone had a rifle. It was a weird place. I could have written about it, but I decided not to write about Afghanistan because there was no train. But I wrote about the traffic in Tehran and the weird little villages and the Shah of Iran, who seemed like a, a tyrant to me. Get off my own bat, I thought, no travel, no sightseeing. I'm not going to go to any museums. I'm just going to talk to people. I'm going to tell people's story and take trains because it's easy. Get on a train, talk to people. You can eat, you can sleep, you can get a sleeper. And then I loved um, books like there's a book called Madonna of the Sleeping Cars, which is a French book about travel, uh, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, that sort of book. The Romance of, of Railways. Not much romance now, but at the time, it was an inspired notion to get on the train and go and end up in Japan. And then after months of, say, three and a half months of travel to Japan, I would take another month and go back on the great, on um, the Trans-Siberian Express. Well, I mean, it was an ordeal. It destroyed my marriage, but, but was, I got a book out of it. And, and as you say, sold lots of copies. But I think the idea that the impulse came from just wishing to do something different and finding a way to do it. And I didn't know whether it would be a successful book or not. I took a camera with me because I thought, well, if you're writing a travel book, you've got to come back with pictures. I had lots of pictures, stacks of pictures. They weren't used in the book. But I wrote the book. The book didn't take long to write because I had been writing notes. I had notebooks full of information. And when I came back, was the notebooks were the book. So I just transcribed my notebooks. About three or four months later, I had the book. You know, I came back in 74. The book came out in 1975. It was all you know, pretty quick work. And then I realized that's a good way to travel, to travel, to talk to people, not to go sightseeing, to make it as human as possible. Because the interesting thing about most countries is its human architecture, not not its palaces or its castles, the traditional objects of, of travel, but people's stories. And they have people have great stories and they're dying to tell them. So I became a listener an observer, an eavesdropper, and I kept doing it. I think that the nature of my books has changed because the nature of travel has changed. So my first book was Great Railway Bazaar. My most recent book 
was a book about Mexico on the Plain of Snakes. It was a road trip, quite different. And I did do something in the nature of sightseeing there. I, I visited churches because churches seemed to me, particularly, you know, the 16th century churches of Oaxaca. And I found them very interesting. I wrote about them. But I also wrote about the people in villages. That hadn't changed. But the nature of my travel had changed. And it was less about me. I mean, The Railway Bazaar is a very egotistical book. It was, I guess, uh, I'm constantly referring to myself in it. In my book about Mexico, On the Plain of Snakes, I kind of disappear in the book. I was much more interested in other people and less in, am I having a good time or a bad time? Am I sick or not? I made, early on, I made a vow never to write about being sick, you know, <laughs> having a travel sickness of any kind. No one wants to read about that or being delayed or being impatient. But I think that that's, that's changed. You mentioned that your books have changed because travel has changed. How has your writing changed in response to that? Your most recent book in Mexico, it's still about spending time with people and the stories that they tell that are unique to a destination. I mean, like you, I don't want to read a travel log. I don't want to read a sightseeing book. But before I go to a place, I do want to read fiction or nonfiction that is unique to and revelatory about where I'm going. So there are wonderful novels, for instance, that I think make you understand India as opposed to reading an Indian guidebook. Yeah, that's true. A travel book can be very misleading. They can be dated, for one thing. There's something enduring about a novel, a novel about a place. I've been reading Patrick White's novels. He's an um, Australian novelist. You read a Patrick White book and you know a lot about Sydney. You know a lot about the, the outback. Fringe of Leaves is about the outback. So Patrick White, rather than a travel book about Australia, I'd say read Patrick White. Peter Carey, a more living novelist, lives in New York, writes about Australia. Italy, a, a book set in Italy. I mentioned Christ Stopped at Eboli, and that's a memoir with, with a lot of texture in it. I've, I get much more out of reading fiction about a place than reading travel. I read travel books, but I'm much more interested in a travel book, which is a difficult journey, which is a problem-solving journey. There's a, a book, a man went in a canoe down the Congo River. Phil Haywood. It's called Canoeing the Congo. He's not a good writer, but he's a brilliant traveler. So you read the book Canoeing the Congo for his experience on it. He's no stylist. I got in touch with him and said, you know, send me your next book and I'll help you with the writing. But you're a braver man than me. He said he was going to travel in Borneo and he would send me the book. I'm less interested in style, in excellence in a travel book than I am about the journey itself. And the more difficult the journey, the better I like it. Someone like The Fearful Void, a book by Jeffrey Morehouse, Crossing the Sahara Desert, or uh, Wilfred Thesiger in The Empty Quarter of Arabia. He's a pretty good writer, but he's a great traveler. And I think that's a theme in my, in, in my reading. I don't like reading badly written books, but if the book is an account of a difficult journey, I'll read it. I think I get more out of it that way, too. I, I think one sh a, a travel should be a challenge. It shouldn't be an easy thing. It should be a challenge. It should be problem-solving. Okay, so I love this idea, Paul, that a great traveler is someone who's going through an ordeal and solving a problem. Because yeah. to me, if you, if you think about the real power of travel to change our lives, to open us up, to think differently, it doesn't happen when you're sitting on a porch drinking a margarita. 
it, it happens when you're canoeing down the Congo. That, that's when you learn about yourself. That's when you may have real deep insights into life and what matters in life, right? I mean, how would you describe what makes a great traveler in those two men that you described? They went alone. Well, Thesiger didn't. Thesiger used to travel with other people. Jeffrey Morehouse was, was alone. Uh, this guy, Phil uh, Hayward, down the Congo, he was alone. People grabbed him. He, he, got, he got into fights. He threatened people. People threatened him. He was practically starving at one point. So being alone, being brave, women do it. Dervila Murphy, Irish woman who died recently, always traveled alone, went by bicycle, took buses, went the most difficult way. Dervila Murphy, an admirable traveler. She had a lot of guts. So it's courage, wit, the ability to solve problems, especially going alone and not looking for comfort, but making discoveries. At the Great Railway Bazaar, I suppose that was an, the discovery there was I was homesick, very homesick on the trip. The old Patagonian Express, I was homesick on that too. I missed my children. I missed my family. I missed my house. I missed the routine. But I realized I'm on a trip. I have to make the most of it. I have to make some discoveries. I have to pay my way here. So it took a certain amount of courage, I suppose, confidence to write about it. But I was homesick. The books that I've chosen have always been uh, difficult books, uh, books about difficult travel. Henry Morton Stanley in Darkest Africa, that kind of book. I Bet You the Heart of Darkness. That's a book Conrad actually took the trip. But Conrad said, I was a mere animal before I went to Africa. In other words, he had only known comfortable trips, easy trips. But Heart of Darkness, which is a despised book, by the way, people on English departments, they don't like Conrad. They think it's about colonialism. They think it's about an old white guy among you know natives and in the Congo. It's a brilliant book. It's a masterpiece. It's a great book. And uh, it's terrible. Well, Huckleberry Finn is also a great book about the Mississippi, actually. Those books teach you a lot. And I think I learned a lot from books in which the traveler set himself the goal of solving a problem, the problem being the Congo River. Phil Hayward's the only guy I know who's traveled down the Congo River. There was a guy, he claimed to be going down the Congo. He wasn't going down the Congo. And Stanley did go down the Congo River. Since then, not many people have. It's very dangerous. I would say also, the nature of travel has changed in this way. I talked about going through Afghanistan and the Railway Bazaar, and I didn't write about it. I did write a, an essay or a piece, and I published it in Esquire afterwards. But do you know anyone who went to Iran, Mashhad, which is the holy city, walked across the border as I did, and then took a bus to Kabul and then down the Khyber Pass? I don't know anyone. Maybe some American soldiers or I don't think anyone's done that. Who could do it now? No one. The nature of travel has changed in that way, too. When I wrote a book about the Mediterranean, the Pillars of Hercules, I went to Syria. I went all over Syria, including Aleppo. Aleppo doesn't exist anymore. It is a destroyed, ruined city. No one's going to travel through Syria now. So has it changed? Yes, it has a lot. I mean, imagine a place that you can't go anymore. Then I go to Singapore, and I don't recognize it because it's changed so much. So travel has changed a lot doesn't mean there's nothing to write about, but it means that the nature of the writing is different. But some places are no-go areas. In some respects, an ideal travel journey is returning to a place and noting its change, discovering, discovering its changes. Uh, the other is trying to find a place which is a challenge, a challenge to go. And yeah. I've tried that too. And 
if I'm correct, Paul, in your travels, a lot of the time you've collected things. You've collected antiques and and other treasures in your travels. Can you talk about what some of those are or have been and, and also how that has changed? Oh, my goodness. There's a character in The Winter's Tale, Autolycus. Autolycus described as the snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. So I'm a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. In Africa, I used to want to buy masks in the 1960s. So I was in Malawi. There was a dance they called the Nyao dance. It was an image dance. So they wear these strange masks. So I remember going, saying to a Malawian, I want to buy a Nyao mask. He said, no, 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 these are, we need these masks. For, <laughs> these are, our spirits are in these masks. I said, okay, all right, keep the mask. Later, these same Malawians were converted to Christianity and they decided to sell their mask. The masks didn't have a spirit. They were worshiping Jesus, going to church, and they got rid of the mask. So that, as a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles, I decided I would buy the mask. Wherever I went in Africa, I bought either carvings. Or... I was very interested in things that people used, stools, kitchen implements, things that, that had a value, baskets, things like that. So I bought those. I traveled in China. I bought things in China. I traveled in India. I bought things in India. I became an expert on bronzes, South Indian bronzes, ritual bronzes of Karnataka, reverse glass paintings. They were done in the mid early to mid 19th century by Chinese artists traveling in India. Reverse glass was a technique, a European technique that was brought to China and then from China to India. So you might be familiar with the, it's glass. They paint on the back of the glass. It's a form of a window, like a stained glass window. And that technique was brought to China and then India, uh, from China to India, and then Indians did it. It's impossible to be a collector in China or India and not be interested in Buddhism. So I began to collect Buddhist sculptures from Gandhara. Gandhara was an area of between Pakistan and sort of northern Pakistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan there. Uh, Gandhara in the first century AD was a great Buddhist center. Why are they great? Because Alexander the Great went there with his men, Persians. They brought carving techniques. They became converted to Buddhism, and they did the first images of Buddha as a human being, as, a, as a, the human face of Buddha. So Gandhara, first and second century, carvings in stone. They also did it in terracotta and so forth. It lasted until it was invaded by the Huns. The Huns destroyed all the monasteries. And then more recently, the Taliban have destroyed a lot of the Buddhist sculptures and in the museums in Kabul, uh, the Bamiyan sculptures, which were destroyed and they were dynamited, actually. So in some respects, collecting is a kind of rescue, I suppose. I could talk all day about things I've collected. I collect Polynesian objects, Hawaiian bowls, Gandhara objects, Buddhas, bronzes, African masks, and um, I deaccession these things at times too. So I give them to museums or send them to auction. But travel, that's a discovery in travel too, is finding things that you can carry back. I went down the Yangtze River in 1980 at a time when very few people were going down the Yangtze River. Very few travelers were going down the Yangtze River. And I remember going to little shops and finding something and I have it on my desk. I mean, I could show you. I would, here's one. Here's a little inkwell that I bought. This little, <laughs> it just happens to be on my desk. This is a little inkwell. Is it a frog? It, 
it's a frog. It's a little frog inkwell that I bought in 1980. How long, you know, 20 years ago, that. Here's a, I'm just, this is just my desk. This is, this I got in New Guinea, in the Trograde Islands. It looks New like Guinea. a phallic symbol. It's not a phallic symbol. It's actually, it's for um, betel nut. They, they, they do betel nut. These are, these are just odd things. All right, so here's a. That's a mask, a or a head. When the missionaries came, went to New Guinea, they saw that people were collecting skulls, and they said, instead of beheading people, why don't you just make them out of wood and use those as ritual objects? So, that, you know, <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's just one little corner of this room. But Well, and I love what you just showed me, because for me, in collecting things, when I travel very much as you do, things that I can bring home in my bag, because I don't like to have a big bag, but are handmade and have meaning in the place. If I look around my room when I'm not traveling, I feel like I have these touchstones of where each place is, and it tells a story, and it brings me back. So it's almost like Proust's Madeleine. You know, it evokes these, these moments all over the world. Well, that's true. And there's also a kind of connoisseurship. You buy something, or you, you discover something, and then you you look into it, where it was done, how it was done, what, what its purpose was. And there's a whole study. The connoisseurship arises from it, and you find another one, and pretty soon you have a collection, and you can tell one from another, or you could tell a fake from something. I was wondering if there was something else here I could show you. Uh, I mean, I've got lots of stuff. When okay. it goes back to the original word of souvenir, right, is just to remember. Exactly but... right. There's a study in it, too. So there's memory, memory, but then there's also... The idea that you're discovering through this object, the Hawaiians have a word, mana. It means this, the spirit of a thing. The mana in an object. Okay, the people who have beetled up, they ran, and then they, there's a little stick that they have. Here's the stick. So you have this stick in it. Now, I got this from an old man. I swapped him an, a jackknife. I said, you want a knife? He said, yeah, I'll give you this. So what you, you put a beetle knot in here, and you ram it, and then you, you lick the stick. And you get high. I said to him, so what's this all about? He said, it's beer. He said, it's Trobriand beer. You get high from, from yeah. the, the beetle nut. That makes you discover the spirit of the place. I mean, I know people who don't collect anything. I've, I've known people who lived in India for years. Actually, I had a relative who lived in India for four years. And he came home with nothing, didn't buy anything. And it, it's strange because actually some of the most enjoyable people to talk to are the shopkeepers who have a shop full of stuff, and they're not that interested in selling it. They, they, they kind of enjoy having all this stuff in their shop. And you go there, and you listen to them, ask them the history behind this or that. And then after you get to know these people, they open a drawer, and they say, well, I'll show you something special. And then they, they take something out of the drawer, and they show you they say this, and they tell you how long they've had it, and they explain the thing to you. If you, have, if you live in a place, you live in an exotic location, you live in, a, in Bombay, in Delhi, in Bangkok, or wherever, Nairobi, whatever, you get to know these people who have this stuff. I knew a man in Addis Ababa. He was Muslim, but he had all these wonderful objects. It was in the, big, in the bazaar in Addis Ababa. My book was called Dark Star Safari. So I stopped there. I went to every day I went, and he had these amazing, he had little uh, prayer books. He had silver crosses. He had pictures of saints on cloth. And then I bought some from him. And I took them away. I, I bought some holy books and some paintings and so forth, rolled up on cloths. So I had them in my bag. Well, I went by the, 
Doxa Safari is an overland trip. So I took them down through southern Ethiopia into Kenya. I bummed rides. I was in a truck. I got a lot of trouble. We got shot at and so forth. But I had the stuff in my bag. I realized later that if I had gone to the airport, they would have been confiscated because you're, you're forbidden for cultural reasons to take these out of the country. But I didn't know that. I had them just in my bag and they, I had them rolled up. They didn't take a lot of space, but turned out to be very valuable. And then learning about them was amazing. And this particular man selling them was amazing too, where he got them. I went to another place there and uh, uh, a shop and the woman said, do you want to buy some ivory? I said, I what, carved ivory? She said, no, tusks. Do you want to buy some tusks? I said, but then they shook my room. It was full of elephant tusks. Well, I mean, that's contraband. That's First, it's wicked to sell tusks, but there's women in a back alley in this bazaar. And I said, who do you sell them to? And she said, well, embassies. I said, which embassy? Chinese embassy, Korean embassy. I said, how do they get them out of the country? She said, they put them in the diplomatic bag. So that's something you learn about. Thinking of, of an occasion to go to talk to somebody is helpful. Yeah. No, I was thinking actually when you were talking about Heart of Darkness, about Dark Star Safari, because that was a wonderful book. I remember you drove from Cairo to Cape Town in that book. And there were moments reading it where I was terrified for you when you did that, basically hitchhiking from Cairo to Cape Town. And yeah, I didn't drive. I didn't drive. I, I went down the Nile in a boat. I went, I hitched a ride in Ethiopia. I was on a truck through Kenya. I was on a train. I was on a bus. I went, you know, you name it. Train from like across Lake Victoria in a, in a boat, in a ferry. Very difficult trip. I, I would say possibly the most difficult trip I've taken and, and one of the most satisfying books, actually. Thanks for worrying. I was. I was really worried for you. But I think I maybe went to the shop in, in Addis that you went to a couple of years ago. And I do remember the guy just pulling ancient coins. I mean, back when they had coins of all different leaders and I mean, just fascinating stuff that can still be found. And I agree, you, you hear the stories of what these things were used for and why they used the holy drawings on fabric was because they were moving them around into these stone churches. And I mean, it's just fascinating. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, that's what, so I'm not naturally acquisitive, but I discovered that objects have a history and the people who go in search of them, the people locally, have stories because they're hunter-gatherers. They're going around, they go to villages, they, they buy things, they trade things. They're amazing people to talk to. They tend to be the travelers in their own country and they go to remote places. In India, for example, an antique dealer in Bombay or Delhi or a big city is someone who goes to the hinterland and they go and they and they travel. So talking, you're talking to a traveler, not a travel writer, but someone who's experiencing negotiating in these very rural areas. They're always enjoyable to talk to. I haven't written about them much. I haven't even written about the things I've collected. Well, in a way, what you're just describing is those hunter-gatherers are also going back to the idea of a good traveler. They're discoverers and they're problem solvers. They may have gone through ordeals and all those things make for storytellers, right? Yes, that's right. Because they have to figure out how to do it. And because this is competition, they want to go to a place that hasn't been visited. So they go to really remote places and they try to discover people. So they tend to be the most intrepid, the most resourceful people, if we're talking about, you know, the real collectors aren't the ones who go to auction. The real collectors have always been the ones who went to the place a country and collected. Sierra Leone, for example, uh, the Guinea coast was a place where there were harvest festivals and great carvers, people carving very big objects. I actually have two 
here, a big snake and a crane. They're in the next room. So what happened was the Guinea coast became Muslim. In the way that I said, the Malawians became Christian and gave this stuff away. In the Guinea coast, the Baga people on the Guinea coast became Muslim. They deaccessioned everything they, they had. So because it was French, a lot of French collectors or travelers went to, to Guinea and collected, well, they just scooped up these objects, bought them from people, from the Muslims who didn't want them anymore. And they were on sale. And they, they, so they took them back to Paris. And to a large extent, you know, these were, there was a famous show at the Trocadero that I think in 1910 and 1912, Picasso went to it. Picasso saw these objects from Guinea, from the Baga objects. And he said, I understood when I saw these, uh, there's one, it's a spirit thing. It looks like a head with a, with a beak. And he began drawing pictures of it. And he said, I realized when I saw these African carvings, what it was that I was doing, that I was in a way mediating a kind of magic, that I learned my art, I learned the notion of my art and my intention from looking at these objects. And the objects had been uh, collected around the turn of the 19th century by explorers and collectors. So I admire people who, who go to places. I sometimes think I've got too much, but <laughs> it's connoisseurship. I justify it by saying I'm learning something. This is a kind of being a, an autodidact. I'm, I'm learning. But it becomes the, the nature of travel. You could go to a place where they don't exist. I was in Malacca, as I said. So I took this Silver Sea cruise ship to, to Malacca. I got off the ship. I had been to Malacca in 1969, and I bought a big settee, a Chinese settee, and a chest of drawers. And I went down to the same street. There are no real antiques to be found in Malacca anymore. They've all been bought. Malacca is a totally different place. In Singapore, there are antique shops, and I have some friends there I bought things from. But it's interesting how a lot of this stuff, it's, it's gone. So there's a limited supply of it. I mean, there's a, a limited number of Chinese carved 19th century settees. So the last ones are gone. So, the, so I went to this place, went back, and they did have curio shops, but nothing resembling what I had seen in the late 1960s and early 70s. So you see something that you like, you really have to get it because it won't be there. Someone else will get it. And then you won't, there won't be any more. You know? yeah. so. No, you have to be really early. I, I was lucky to go, I remember, to Vietnam right after it reopened in the late 90s and going to these little stores in what had been Saigon that were, as they said, they had people had collected the treasures that had lasted from, you know, the 1940s and 50s when the French colonials were there. Little, I have a carved silver and engraved toothpick holder with tie dancers. And each toothpick is a carved silver rod with a tie dancer on the top. And then they're in an ebony and silver little stand with 10 toothpicks around. I mean, it was just one of these crazy relics from a period that's gone. And you go back to Saigon now, and it's all high rises and, and television shops. There's no antique stores. That's true. And that's very And I have the same story, except I was there a bit earlier. I was there during the war. And I was there in 1973, in the interregnum, before South Vietnam fell. But we were still there. And there were still bombs and so forth. So 73, it was the railway bazaar trip. And I went to an antique shop, and it was filled with stuff. And I bought, I actually have it in the next room. It's a panel from a temple, but it's scorched because the temple was obviously bombed. So I, I got this thing. 
I went back to Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, as we call it now. And there's a street of antique shops, but there's nothing in them of interest, nothing at all. I mean, um, it's amazing how the stuff has either been snapped up or, or maybe there are antiques there, but I, did, I couldn't find any. And I looked. I yeah. looked. So you had the same experience. You were there in the 90s. So here we are. And, yeah. Um, there's nothing there. So you had talked earlier, Paul, about the idea of returning to places and how in travel that's something that can be really valuable. What are some of the places that you want to go back to? I would like to go back to Central Africa. I was a teacher in a school in the southern region of Malawi. I would like to go back and see, does the school exist? What are the students like? What are their dreams? What are their fears? What would they like to do? What does it look like? I'm very interested in what's going to happen to the world. You can find out what's going to happen to the world by going back to places and seeing what happened to them. So in a way, there's a kind of prophetic quality of returning to a place, of seeing that, of seizing what's there and you say, this will happen to us, or this will happen to this other country, or this is a consequence of whatever, deforestation. Malawi has, I've been back, not recently, but I was there maybe 15 years ago, and deforestation has completely changed the country. If you cut down all the trees, you need them for fuel, you cut them down, you have floods, the rivers are silted up, you have erosion, it's, it's terrible, and you have starvation as a result too. Also, the weather pattern can change by deforestation. So you see the consequences of man-made disasters, of man-made decisions. I've been to the eastern part of Ecuador where they're pumping for oil. You see the consequences of pumping for oil. You see a lot of pollution in eastern Ecuador. So going back to find out what happened to people, what happened to, you know, somebody in a place, what is this person doing? He or she, do they have children? They're married, they're older. What, what are their experiences? So you might've talked to them 20 or 30 years ago. If they're still alive, you hear their stories. So, I mean, the longer you live, the more you see that how the world has changed, how it's going to go on changing. And there's a kind of warning in a lot of travel too. So going back to a place, it's not enjoyable. I mean, it's a way of, I suppose it can be grim at times, but I mean, that's the nature of the kind of travel that I do. And I think it's discovering how the world is, is changing, changing for the better in some respect. Singapore was a very seedy place in the 1960s. It's not seed anymore. It's a high-rise garden city, really. Very, very beautiful. And I think that, you know, the consequences of there's 23 million people in Mumbai. Well, that's a different place from the place that I was there before. Sri Lanka, the whole country has 23 million people. So there's a consequence of it's a very pleasant place. Politically, it has problems. Economically, it has problems. But it looks great because the population is so small. And where the population has increased, you see the, the consequences of that, of overpopulation. That's the sort of thing that I've been writing about. Where would I like to go back to? I would like to go back to any of the places that I went a long time ago. I like going back to my hometown of Bedford, Massachusetts, to see how it's changed. I like going back to Cape Cod every year. We spend the summer there. One of the great things about going back to Cape Cod is it's changed very little because the, of resistance to development. Route 6A, which goes from Sagamore Bridge up to Orleans and into Provincetown, hasn't changed very much. There's no fast food on Route 6A. There are no McDonald's. There's no Taco Bell. Martha's Vineyard has no fast food. So you see, when people get together and they resist that kind of pernicious development, Nantucket has no fast food. So you see what it, the consequences of that. In Hawaii, we have it. And you see the consequences. 
say, as a pressure group. So Route 6A, where I live, off Route 6A, I go every June 1st roundabout. I drive down that road. Nothing has changed. It's the same road I've been traveling down since the mid-70s. That's kind of a good thing. It is. And there are places in Maine that are like that. There are places around the world, I suppose, that are somewhat like that. But change and decay are one of the features of the modern world. I sound like an old fogey saying that, but actually, life is better for people if they know what they want and how to achieve those aims. So, Paul, I think I've heard that you're working on a new book on George Orwell. Can you talk about that a little bit and why Orwell and, and what your fascination with it is and how close you are? Sure. You know, George Orwell, that's not his real name. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah. His real name is Eric Blair, Eric Arthur Blair. When people change their names, like Mark Twain is called Sam Clements, right? When people change their names, there's always a suggestion that they have a divided self, a split personality. In the case of Mark Twain, it's true. In the case of George Orwell, it's true. So Eric Blair, before he became George Orwell, went to Eton College, which you know of as a place where the students are very wealthy. They study very hard. It's very exclusive, elite school. And most of Eric Blair's schoolmates went to Oxford. He just didn't go to Oxford. He decided to become a policeman. Well, can you imagine? So here's, <laughs> here's a kid, goes to this exclusive public school, which is a private school in England, and becomes a policeman in Burma in 1922. And he's a policeman there for five years. This is George Orwell's early life. Pretty amazing when you think that it's 1922. It's the British Raj is in full swing. It's the Roaring Twenties. The place is very prosperous, but there's also a nationalist movement. And so Eric Blair, before he became George Orwell, was a very tough policeman. He was young. He was also very tall. He was very well educated, but he had to make a go of it. If he had quit, he'd have to give money back. So I've been to Burma. I'm sure you've been to Burma too, probably. I have, yep. And Orwell wrote a book called Burmese Days. That's after he changed his name. Blair changed his name to Orwell in order to publish a book called Down and Out in Paris and London, and then Burmese Days. Burmese Days is a pretty good novel, but it's not a great novel. It's a first novel, so it's, it's, it has all the flaws of that. But when Orwell was in Burma, he spoke the language. He traveled a lot. He was in six different places, Rangoon, Mandalay, and then in the Delta, and then in Moulmain. And I discovered that he had a family in Moulmain. So Moulmain is in, in Lower Burma, and his mother had been born there. Some of his family still lived in Moulmain. Well, you'd never know that from reading Orwell's writing. You would know that he had not only had family living in Moulmain, but two of his uncles married local women. One, one married an Indian, one married a Burmese woman. And that's a kind of interest because in the 1920s, it was, was not the done thing for an English person to marry a local woman. That was, you didn't advance in your career. I mean, even Hong Kong, British people in Hong Kong who married local women, even up to in the 1990s, was considered not a great thing to do. It wasn't helpful to your career to have a local wife or husband, for that matter. It's the nature of travel, too. Whatever you're writing something about another country, I'm seeing Burma through Blair Orwell's eyes and seeing how it changed him. Later, Orwell said, a period of time in a country in a different place can change you completely. Conrad was changed by Africa. I was changed by going to Africa. I became a writer. And I became a different person. I became a better teacher, I think, by teaching in Africa. I had a purpose. I became, I think, idealistic. I wasn't interested in looking at game. I was interested in, in teaching. 
And Orwell, as a result of living in being a policeman in Burma, turned against it. He ended up hating the police, just thinking that colonialism is a racket. And after five years of having servants, having a uniform, being a policeman, being a pretty tough policeman, he dropped out and became a dishwasher in Paris. So people wondered, where did he get his ideas about colonialism, about servants, about the elite, about the class system? Uh, he got them by being a policeman in Burma. And very little is known about the, his day-to-day -day life in Burma. But through memoirs, letters, histories, geography books, and so forth, I discovered what life was like and what his might have been like. So I decided to write a novel based on Blair Orwell in Burma, his five years, what he learned, how he lived, where he traveled, the different landscapes and so forth. And it was, I've never written a historical novel before. Uh, I wrote a book, a play about Rudyard Kipling in Vermont, but I never wrote anything resembling this. So it was, it's been very, I've just finished it actually just recently. It will come out later this year or early next year. It's called Burma Sahib. He's a Sahib. So that's, I'm excited. Yeah, that's my whole thing. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Okay, last question, Paul, where are you going next? Uh, I really don't know. I, what, I've been, you know, my last two travel books have been road trips. Road trip deep south. I traveled all around the south by car. And I discovered I love traveling alone by car on back roads. I like traveling in the south so much. I traveled to Mexico in my own car and I drove around. I have the idea of an extensive road trip in my ancestral country of Canada. So my ancestors went to Canada in the 17th century. In 1695, my earliest ancestor, who's called Antoine Theroux, went to Quebec, uh, New France, as it was called then. And there were still a lot of Theroux's. His first son was called Paul Theroux. So there was a Paul Theroux. Around 1701, there was a Paul Theroux running around Canada. I have the idea of a, a road trip in Canada. The challenge of it would be what to write about. It would be people, of course. It's not a physical challenge unless you go, as I did last February. The winter's very cold and snowy, and I found it challenging driving around. But I, I think something like that. I, I have the idea of going back to Africa or going to various countries and being a teacher again. I could still do it. I'm still yeah. reasonably healthy, you know, knock on wood. I could be a teacher and writing about being a teacher. So I have a lot of ideas. I'd also like to go to a place I've never been. I've never been to Greenland. I've never been to Scandinavia. You know, I've been to parts of the Pacific. I've never been to um, Venezuela. I have a list, bucket list of places that I'd like to go. The place that I'd most like to go is back to Central Africa, just for maybe two or three weeks to see what it's like. But with the disappearance of magazines, it's hard to get an assignment to go. You know, who's going to publish yeah. that? You know, 20 years ago, there were a lot of magazines, travel magazines that would say, okay, that's a good idea. Let's do it. But there are fewer now. I travel on my own nickel now, pretty much. I go where I want yeah. to go at my own, on my own money and then see how it works out. In other words, I'm not short of ideas, but I know the books will be different. It won't be the Great Railway Bazaar. It won't be the old Patagonia Express. It'll be something different, something new. And if it's Canada, then I can say I wrote about Canada, I wrote about the United States, and I wrote about Mexico. It could be my, my North American trilogy of road trips. Yeah, yeah. Have fun. Well, it's always great to talk travel with you, Paul. Thank you so much. Melissa, it's great talking to you, too. Take care. Thanks. And uh, happy trails. <laughs> you, too. I want to thank Paul Theroux for being with us today and taking the time to discuss how reading, writing, and traveling all enrich each other. If your passport is about to expire or has expired, 
You'll want to keep listening for this week's travel hack on online passport renewals. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Travel Hacks with Melissa Biggs Bradley from Passport Passport to to Everywhere. Okay, this week on Travel Hacks, we are talking about a new service offered by the U.S. State Department for renewing passports online. In exciting news, U.S. citizens can now renew their passport online, saving you a trip to your regional passport agency or the lag of snail mail. So the U.S. State Department tested the service out last year, and they are now still calling it a temporary service available for all to use. But if your passport is about to expire, listen up. You qualify for online renewal if you're 25 years or older, if you have the physical passport, you're not changing any of your biographical information, you live in the U.S., and you're not traveling internationally for the next six weeks. And if your most recent passport was valid for 10 years and issued over nine years ago, but less than 15 years ago, if all of that sounds like you, You can create an account on mytravel.state.gov. You'll receive an account verification email with a link that you just click to activate your account. This activation period may take up to 24 hours. After that period, log into your account and click Renew Passport to get started. A couple of important things to note about this process is there's a $130 renewal fee for the passport book. Your most recent passport will be immediately canceled when you submit your application. And this service does not expedite your renewal. Processing times are the same as by mail and vary greatly, but usually range from six to nine weeks. So always make sure you leave ample time to renew your passport before traveling. Huge thank you to Paul Theroux for joining us today. To learn more about his latest work, check out his website at paultheroux, that's T-H-E-R-O-U-X dot com and Instagram at paul.theroux. Thank you for tuning in to Passport to Everywhere this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know it inspired me to add some new books to my reading list for upcoming adventures. Next week, I'll be speaking with my fellow Indigari travel experts about our recent journeys to Antarctica. Tune in to learn everything you need to know before traveling to the final frontier. And in the meantime, I'd love to hear about your best and worst travel experiences. Any travel hacks you'd like to hear me address on the show, any guests you'd like me to interview, and of course, your questions. So leave a message at 646-535-7297. Send us a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel, or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Thanks for listening to the show. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms. And anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. Everywhere.